0: Greetings, this is Anne Markham Bailey, host and producer of Present Tense podcast. We're deep into season three, the Practice of Being series, rooted in the creative awareness practice that is at the center of my new book, The Practice of Being. The focus of this series is visionary leaders, people who change the world through the lens and application of awareness in myriad disciplines. I'm thrilled to introduce Present Tense listeners to poet and educator Koya Fagan Maples, a woman who insists upon living fully into her experience and honoring her passion to, in her words, clarify and demystify injustice and to record beauty that is worthy of report. Koya is a writer living in Birmingham, Alabama, She is the author of MEND from the University Press of Kentucky, published in 2018. MEND tells the story of the birth of obstetrics and gynecology in America and the role of black enslaved women in that process. She holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Alabama and is a Cave Canem Fellow. Maples is an assistant professor of creative writing in the MFA program for creative writing at the University of Alabama. I invited Koya to participate in the Visionary Leaders series on present tense because of her commitment to being as an educator, mentor, mother, wife, and poet. She journeys deep into the exploration of authentic voice and sees her job to be one of recording as witness as well as giving voice to stories that have not been told. I want to welcome you, Koya, and thank you for your time for this interview. It, okay. uh, I'm really thrilled to have you be part of the, the Practice of Being series. I remember very clearly when I knew that I was a poet as a young person. And for some people that is the case, and for some people it's not, I'm just curious at what point you really, um, decided to take a dive into poetry and decided it was a place where you like to swim.
1: Um, I decided that when I was a teenager, um, I always wanted to be a writer since I was about eight years old. Um, but I had not found poetry yet. And so, um, you know, I just was reading my, all of my favorite writers, uh, novels by them Um, I got into Maya Angelou's autobiography series and that just blew my mind Um, she blew my mind and then I think her way of being in the world just I found kinship in that and so when I ran out of her autobiographies at the library I read I picked up one of her books of poetry and I had been avo- avoiding it, like the whole series. There's like, you know, six series, six books in her, um, uh, autobiographical series. And, um, I finally picked up that book, um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to check this out and take it home. Cause there's nothing else left by her to read. And then when I, I, I read it again, you know, I had that experience of, of finding myself in the work. Um, and ultimately, it led to me um, starting out writing poems that mimicked hers. You know that was how I how I began. Um, and then over time, just like kind of developed into my own um, I don't know, my own fascination and my own style of approaching the the art form. I wrote a lot of playful poems when I was in high school. Um, and I enjoyed them so much. (laughs) Uh, I enjoyed writing them so much. I shared them with um, people in my class when I was supposed to be doing algebra two. Um, Instead of doing that, like I I became a nuisance to my teacher. Uh, I, I didn't understand what was happening in the class. I always had a hard time in math. And, you know, I would write poems and they were very silly. They always had cheese or pea in them. And, <laughs> and, um, and my friends would laugh, and they, they enjoyed the poems, so I just kept writing them. Um, but I always think back on that time, like very fondly, because I wasn't getting any feedback on writing. like nobody had given me permission um, to do any of what I was doing. But I just was enjoying myself so much. It was just so pleasurable. And that's all it was. Just like simply pleasure.
0: I remember um, fifth grade, just getting in, in sixth grade. I just wanted to write stories about horses. <laughs> <laughs> Heroic stories. about. <laughs> and they kept, the teachers kept trying to tell me that I had to like do these other, like you have to do this other stuff. And I was cry and say, but I don't just want to write a horse story. Yeah. It's interesting when you know what you are. Mm-hmm. What do you see as your role as a poet? Um and that's a lot to unpack, but maybe some things fly by <laughs> that you
1: can. <laughs> yeah, I mean I, I, I think about um my role is to use use the gift that I've been given, uh, to use the voice that I've been given, um, to develop my voice, to be my authentic self, uh, to keep reaching towards that, uh, reaching towards authenticity. But then also, like, you know, I, I think to write poems that, like, clarify injustice, um, that demystify injustice. I think that's that's one thing. And then also just to record beauty. Um, and when I say beauty, I, I don't just mean things that are pretty, I just mean um, all manner of life, right? I, I consider all manner of life, you know, above the ground to be beautiful, um, to be worthy of report. And so um I see that as as my role I see my um self as having a job to record I, in, in 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 a way that is sometimes is sometimes overwhelming and um troublesome
0: <laughs> Can you say more about what about it is troublesome
1: I think um, you know, having again, like you know, I, I you know, I've written and said that, like you know, I, I was born with a job to record, and having this sort of job and having this kind of brain that very easily pushes into the internal self, right, or the or or my analysis of the situation, for example, watching, you know, a sandcastle being built on the the beach by my children and being kind of stuck in that observation instead of joining them and that's what I mean by by troublesome it's like if your brain is kind of constantly switching into that mode of recording and thinking about applying language to your life then at what point are you living your life and being present in your life And so I think that question is something that kind of comes up a lot being a mother and being a wife.
0: You're almost describing being a scribe Mm -hmm. as you're recording what you witness. Mm
1: -hmm. Right. And then also, just like, you know, if not recording what is witnessed, but also. Thinking about the stories and considering the stories and bringing to light the stories that have not been witnessed is also something that I consider to be my job um, as a poet.
0: When you think about society in general, very general, and if you want to get into specifics, of course, please I invite you to do so. Where do you see the role of, of poetry? Talk to you about your role as poet, giving voice to either what you witness or what has not had voice. So as um, for society, what is the role of poetry?
1: Yeah, I feel first it, it should offer a place of, I feel first that uh, poetry should offer a place of respite. Um, It it should offer a place of recognition for the reader. Um, It should give the reader permission to more fully be themselves. Um, And then I also think that um, it is... You know, it should be compelling and it, it should in, inspire people to to take action. So, you know, I'm not saying that all poetry should do that, but poetry in general should do be doing one or more of those jobs. At any given time.
0: and uh, in terms of calling people to action, mm-hmm. is that in the stories that are told through the poet's eyes, is that embedded in the language itself is that uh can you unpack that a little bit?
1: yeah, I mean, I think it's through all of those things. I think that it is through um you know whether the the poetry's narrative um you know whether uh, the poetry is, like you said, more embedded, right? The the the, the compelling, um, you know, um, action of the poetry is more embedded in the text. No matter how it happens, I don't I don't think that poetry has to be overtly political in order to be political. I do believe that all poetry is political. All poetry is. Uh, an expression of a longing for something. I
0: know that's a big thing to say, um, but that's
1: what it seems to be to me.
0: I'm really interested in understanding more of your longing, the longing that is expressed in your work.
1: The longing, um, I think it's expressed in different ways. I think um, it really depends on what I'm writing. When I'm writing historical persona, the longing is that the reader understand the person that I'm, that I'm trying to, to, um, to bring to life. Um, that, that is what that longing is. And then when it comes to work that is more biographical, taking from my own life, there's a longing to to not be compartmentalized, to be seen in several different ways, um, uh, to be seen as a a, a multifaceted human being, um, and I think that that my writing is 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 a push a lot of times against what i think others perceptions of me might be in some ways i feel very vulnerable saying with that saying that but um it's true
0: so is that uh working with the outer and then with the inner realities of being Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and also just the permissions that um you know society gives one right just kind of pushing against pushing against those permissions, I would say is like especially like one of the kind of um, main things about my own work or work that is more biographical, even just to say that you know being married as as a black woman in 2022 you know the moment of my proposal you know just that being that being singular in a kind of way or that being unique in a kind of way because it's only been a couple of hundred years right it's only it hasn't been that long that you know, black people could even make a choice about who they married, and so, um, you know, me making the choice to to write about that, to write about marriage, to write, you know, these kinds of poems, um, are pushing again against that at a time where, um, you know, society is on one hand is trying to say, like, you know. This thing is less valuable, but I'm like showing up and I'm saying, well, wait, I just got here. You know, if I just if I decide that I want my family to dress in matching clothes, which this has never happened. But I'm just saying if I wanted all of us to dress in matching clothes and go somewhere together. That would be the first time that that would have happened in my family history. And so I think these, these differences, especially between like, um, you know, uh, black families. And again, you know, I, I come from, you know, first generation uh, uh, college student on my, my dad's side, you know, second generation college student on my mom's side. And again, like just, you know, what, what may seem very ordinary to others, Or maybe even, you know, I don't know, Pollyanna is the only word that comes to mind. Just sort of pat or usual. It's actually extraordinary for me. And it's extraordinary for for where I come from. And, um, um, yeah, I hope that answers that question. (laughs)
0: What, what I hear from you is you saying that you want to live into the moments of what is happening to you as a person instead of just speeding by it because the outside world perhaps doesn't understand the profound importance. Right. Absolutely. And the thing about Stopping and saying, No, I'm going to live into this and let others experience it. Is that that communication is so important? Yeah. That kind of communication to me seems like very deep leadership. Mm-hmm. So I'm always curious about the role of mother mm-hmm. being mother while one is also being prof- a professional person and a partner and earning funds honing craft building audience can you speak to that
1: Yeah um I think uh, I think I'm qualified um <laughs> i you know i have uh nine nine year old twins and a seven year old um and all little girls um they they um they're very incredible humans uh human beings um they've they're, they're my biggest challenge and then also like my, my biggest um, uh, motivation. Um, I, I feel like being mother to them has empowered me. Um, and it's also given me a lot of structure that I didn't have before. I remember when I was a younger writer just saying like, oh, I don't feel like writing. I'm just not in the, the the mood and nothing is inspiring me. You know, I remember going long periods of time without writing. Um, but now whenever I have time to write or, you know, um, time has been set aside for me to write, I'm just like, oh my gosh, I have to take advantage of this. I don't care what comes out. I don't care how bad it is. <laughs> I have to take advantage of this time and I have to use it. And so I think being a mother like taught me to to structure my time and and I became most productive as a writer after having children. Um you know I didn't I I published a chapbook um before, you know, before I had children, but I didn't publish a full collection of poetry until until you know 2018, four years ago. Um and so I think kind of being given that that constraint, right? <laughs> um a, a life constraint and a poetic constraint too at the same time, right? Um being given that constraint, um it actually motivated me and pushed me to to work harder, to um, to get stuff done. And um I think what prepared me for motherhood also was poetry because poetry requires such like a keen concentration, right, and and noticing patterns, right? And um, that was the first thing that I found with motherhood, like being a young mother and my kids being like infants and having absolutely no clue what I was doing. Like I just described it as like being given a puzzle of like 2,000 pieces, and then somebody just saying, okay, put this together right now. That that was what my experience was like, just feeling like uh, completely clueless about what to do, and then everyone around you assuming that you're the authority on what to do. Um, And so that required, right, my keen concentration. It required me like noticing patterns, picking up on things. Okay, when I hold the baby like this, this happens. When I do, when I lay the baby down after they've eaten, you know, this is like picking up on those patterns. It's, I feel like poetry prepared me for for motherhood in that way. Um, But in terms of just the richness that it offers, like that the life offer, right? Of being a mother, like kind of witnessing, a child like come into language, um, you know, helping them learn how to read, um, seeing them experience things in the world—all of this is very, I would say, like artistically stimulating because everything is just, um, just interesting and, and beautiful. Um, but then also, I think all mothers who are writers have these times where you know, that that desire to get somewhere and write, it has to be pushed, has to be pushed aside. You know, when you have this human being in front of you who needs you in some way and you can't get to what you want and sometimes there's like this frustration that builds over the course of time and that of not being able to get to, you know, the place where you can write. Um, And I think it's really important to have someone who's supportive, um, you know, in, in making sure that that happens for you and knowing that that's a part of your life and that's part of what feeds you and that's part of what you need. Um, so yeah, thankfully, Marcus is, is is definitely that Marcus is my husband, but yeah, thankfully he's, he's very supportive and and knows that that's part of what helps me to exist. (laughs)
0: You know, just having children is such an amazing thing. Sometimes I see pregnant women and I'm just like, oh, my God, right under that skin, there's a baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just so great. Yeah, it's, it's hard to even conceptualize. It's
1: hard. Yeah. There's so much mystery around it, too. You know, you go to the doctor and something's happened to you that's really weird. I remember one morning I woke up and my gums were all swollen, like just puffy, just got like when I, while I was pregnant and I went to the doctor, the doctor's like, "Mm, yeah, happens. Why? Can't answer why. There's so many things, so many little things that happen to your body and, and nobody can tell you why. Like you think like, oh, you know, we're, you know, we're. In modern times, this is 2020, whatever, you know, everything should be known by now. There's still things, there's still so much that people
0: don't know. As an educator, what is your aspiration for for your students? And, yeah, what is what is your aspiration for the students who... Work with
1: you. <laughs> um, I have big aspirations for my students. I I want to teach their whole selves, and um, you know, my my pedagogy is very much informed by bell hooks, um, and uh, she has a book called Teaching to Transgress. Um. And this book talks about education as the practice of freedom. And it also talks about bringing your whole self as a teacher into the classroom, your whole self, not just your intellect, but your whole self, Um, which really, really resists the tradition of, Um, that has been prevailing in the academy, which is like, you know, you only are your mind, you only are your intellect. It doesn't matter um, what you wear in the classroom or how you act outside of the classroom. The only thing that matters is your brain, your, um, you know, again, your intellect. Um, And so kind of getting away from that idea and resisting that idea, which I think has been very, prominent in, um, you know, kind of European-American, you know, uh, the academy, as it were, right? Through, you know, uh, in the past um, and still today. And so getting away from that, that old system and that old way that doesn't recognize either the professor or the student as a human being, that is what i i am that is what I am pushing against and i' i've had i've been having to break down things that i um you know systems of like systems of um, power that i witness right going getting my, as i you know gain my education um And, you know, I gained my education in all predominantly European-American, you know, communities um, or institutions. And so, um, you know, kind of getting away from those practices has been something that I've had to actively do um, and come to a place where my main interest is not exerting power in the classroom, but creating an environment where my students feel permission to take risks, um, to fail, um, to um, be themselves, and I, 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 I am challenging myself to recognize their humanity, recognizing their need to to eat, to move. Um, to learn how to manage their lives. Um, I, I talked to my students, you know, just the other day, at my poetry workshop, at the beginning of the workshop, we have movement. And this class is, it's a two and a half hour class. The first 10 minutes, we have movement. Um, and each student is responsible each week, you know, a different student is responsible each week for bringing in the movement so it could be Yoga, um it could be seated yoga, it could be standing um, and uh, each student you know we it's it's different every single week, one week it was ecstatic dancing, <laughs> which was a lot of fun um, but it, yeah, it's just ten minutes and of us like kind of getting in touch with our bodies, like being in the space, being mindful, um, you know in our own bodies, and kind of taking care of. The stress and anxiety that can be associated with just coming into a classroom space. Um, and I think that the movement kind of helps create this environment of like non judgment that I want to happen in the classroom. And so we do that. And, you know, also yesterday I talked to them about setting a vision for 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 any kind of goal you have in your life. And we, you know, we wrote a vision at the beginning of the semester where we talked about, you know, I gave them a prompt, you know, that I had received from Javasia Bowser. Gave them a prompt that that says, you know, it is it is April twenty ninth, twenty twenty two, and I'm so proud of all I've created this semester. And then they—that was the prompt. And so then they wrote out what they wanted to have done by the end of the semester. How would they wanted to approach writing, and like how, what, what permissions they wanted to give themselves, and and what they wanted to give and bring to others in the community of the classroom. Um, and so I had us read back through those because we wrote them on the first day. Had them read back through them yesterday, and I talked to them about how this is something you can do in area, any area of your life and how revisiting all the time is so important. So I think my whole approach has been to, to teach the whole student to not act as if my students are somehow separate from their bodies or separate from their their personal lives. Um, but understanding, I, I feel like I can only effectively teach my students this way. It's not because I want to be quote unquote nice or not because I want to be, a, you know, um, I don't know, like a I'm trying to can't think of another word, but like like a hippie or something like I'm just trying to. It's because I, it's actually what I have found to be the most effective way to teach my students and to reach my students. Um, and there are all sorts of risks associated for me that I have to overcome all the time. Um, but it's worth it. And even them, for them to see me, everything that I ask my students to do, I do. And so when I, when I give them a writing prompt, I do the writing prompt. If we're doing movement, I'm doing movement with them. Um, I just believe in modeling the practice, modeling the practice of being a writer. Um, I'm not just coming in here to... (laughs) to teach you writing, but you also see how I am practicing writing as a writer. And you see how I am approaching this art form in the healthiest way that I possibly can. And I'm demonstrating a way that you can do that. Um, so, yeah.
0: As a writer, could you talk about Uh, your book men talking about the inspiration and in breath and inspire instead of inspired, Mm -hmm. you know, because Mm -hmm. it's such a physical experience that the women went through that. And life is such a physical experience
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think um, for me with Mind, you know, I had uh, gotten through grad school um, and, you know, I had written poems. I've always written poems that were mainly biographical poems and somehow taken from my life. Um, And I'd gotten tired of writing those poems. I wanted to write about something that I don't know, something that would that was bigger than me. And I think part of the reason why this book was born was because I, you know, I was curious about motherhood. And I, at Cave Canem, part of an organization for African-American poets called Cave Canem. It's a national organization and they have summer retreats every summer um, and so I was at one of these retreats and I met a woman and she was telling me about her son. And I was just curious, you know, about what it was like to be pregnant, what it was like to be a mother. Um, and so I was asking her questions and, you know, she was giving me these very straightforward, descriptive answers without withholding <laughs> any information. And I remember just being like, wow, nobody's ever talked to me this frankly about being pregnant before. Um, and um, I was really struck by that. I was struck by her. And then she asked me, she said, have you ever heard of Anarcha, Betsy and Lucy? And I was like, no. And she told me, you know, this, the story of these of these women. Um, and come to find out, of course, and Betsy, and Lucy were only one of eleven women that were, um, you know, considered experimental subjects by Dr. May- James Marion Sims of Mount Megs, Alabama, and uh, he performed a, a series of experimental surgeries on them between uh, 1845 and 1849. So about, you know, four and a half year period, um, and from this he was able to establish uh his name uh his wealth um because he was the first person who had done these sort these kind of surgeries on women in America um and uh you know he moved on to New York he opened a hospital for women um and these women in from Alabama these enslaved women they were never heard of again, right? Um, and he, you know, he had, he never wrote about them again. And so when I read his autobiography, just like looking for them, first of all, there was hardly any information at the time, like not even on the internet about them or about this case. And so I, I, you know, I got his autobiography and I read about the surgeries and, and found that he only named Anarcha Betsy and Lucy. He only mentioned them in the records, their names, but there are at least 11 women. And he admits this in the autobiography that he was experimenting on. Um, and the fact that they weren't named really got under my skin. Um, and the fact that their stories, their point of view was never shared uh, really bothered me. He, he only, in his autobiography, only mentions one time a woman being in pain. He says, Lucy was much prostrated and I thought she was going to die. And that's the only time in the entire autobiography that he actually acknowledges, um, the, the woman's pain, but he, he's expressing most of the time in the autobiography, this, just this excitement, right. Of being like the first and, um, you know he says, "I have seen as no man has seen before you know this is this direct quote um he he's he's expressing this excitement and this sort of this sort of scientific like delight um with uh, discovery through throughout the book, and that is kind of like what his I, I don't know his his stance is or what his stance was um and the fact that these women are you know that he considered them footnotes. Is you know that that injustice, like I, I couldn't, could not walk away from. And so, you know, so I wrote the first poem that that same day. That um, this woman, her name is Robin Cost Lewis. She's a, a a writer, um, as well. But obviously, but anyway. Robin um, you know told me about this story and I wrote the poem that night and after I wrote that first poem I decided I was like okay I'm not writing anymore about this until I've done my what I consider to be my due diligence of researching. I didn't feel like I even had permission to write poems about, about this story or to write poems about these women. I didn't automatically assume that. And I felt like I had to, to earn it um, as best as I could. And so I, I felt like through research, I, I would do that. Um, and so I, the way that I approached it was, I researched for a year without writing any poems about, you know, about the story. And then after that first year of reading, which that was very overwhelming, right? Um, But after that first year of reading, researching, kind of gathering my companion texts, I then started writing. I was very fortunate to have a writing residency in New York at um, the the Pocantico Estate, the Rockefeller Brothers Plantation in New York. And um, I was there alone for uh, two and a half weeks for a residency. And that was where I started writing the book. Um, and just having that very dedicated, concentrated time to write was was crucial for me.
0: Uh, what did you do, Koya, to take care of yourself during that during that whole period? <laughs>
1: I um I think separating the research from the writing helped. Um reading about it, thinking about it, ruminating on it, that was the hardest part, I think. Um but you know, I you know, I'm a believer, I have a belief system, you know, I I'm a lover of God and and so like I think that obviously you know kept me, right? And then, also just having people that I could talk to um I talked to everybody about it <laughs> um it, a lot of times people you know they i could tell they didn't want to have those conversations with me, but i really i felt like it 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 was something that I had to to release right It was something I had to get out and so I would end up talking to people, not so much about what I had read but just about the pro-, pro-, pro- project generally, you know like just I had to just, um, I don't know, just kind of relieve myself that way, just I kept talking about it. I almost felt like I talked about it too much. Um, but then once the the good thing about separating the research and the writing was that the writing wasn't so overwhelmed by the research. Um, and then because I had already done the research and, and and I felt like I had that permission and I and then I felt like I I could really listen and I could really hear. I could really hear the women and then I just started seeing the these scenes and um you know hearing what they would say and just recording it
0: you briefly mentioned Kaveh Kanem is there anything else you'd like to say about the work that um, this organization sure and I ask that simply because uh, in the some of the times that I've been around you I've come to understand that this organization has played seems like a very important role in your development and in the development of others
1: Right. Yeah. Carve um, is a is a crucial community, I believe, for, um, you know, folks of the African diaspora, you know, across the African diaspora. Um, and, you know, I guess, like, as a young poet, it was the only community of its kind, um, you know, for African-American poets. And it's not so much that I, you know, was, you know, best friends with everyone that I met in Kaveh or that I was um, definitely not the most popular Kaveh fellow or, uh, you know, being, a, I'm being an introvert's introvert, right? Not so much that, but I think the role that Kave Kanem has always had has, has been as this, It's it's like a touchstone, but then it's also like this, force and they're the all of the voices right all of the writing all of the books that have been published all of the voices that you hear of the faculty members of the whole community is saying tell the stories for the people who can't tell the stories like that is the continual message and you know reading the work of you know you know these people that i you know i would consider my co- that i consider my colleagues like reading their work and kind of seeing the the waves right of the literary community through reading this work has been just this guiding it's just been a guiding force um, and it's also been a validating force when I've been thinking about things and considering, you know, what's happening in the world a certain way, and then I read the work, you know, of of another poet, of another African American poet, and I'm like, yes, yes, you know, finding right this this commonality. Um, again, you know, finding this validation and more permission, right, to be the self. Um, that that's been what Kaveh Khanum is. That is what Kaveh Kahnem
0: is. Would you like to um, offer a poem? Sure. Would you like
1: a poem for men or for my current manuscript?
0: I'd say it's up to you.
1: Okay. Well, I will read this poem. Um, it's called Invisible Work. Um. And it's about acknowledging all the things that don't get counted as work. Um, Acknowledging all of those invisible actions that people have taken. And so here it is. Invisible work or teachers, guides whose gestures I recall better than names So much I've been taught I have yet to know, but owed to every stitch of braid past my mother's fingertips, sewing countless buttons for every day my grandmother cooked and cleaned house twice. And sister Eugenia Foster, who kept my brother and I in summer, taught me steeping and drinking tea and how I could call for someone but not cry when they passed over. The wind chimes too, all their constant worry with wind. Even after her stroke, my grandmother Dorothy rose on cold nights, pulled a heavy leg down the hall to cover me with a quilt her own grandmother quilted. On his days off, My father lacquered my found rocks, praised my keen eye. Wasn't he urging me to notice? I see now all this gracious lack of accounting, but maybe too how tonight in terrific storm, when the wind picked up and pitched warning, this primal body took off running homing through the dark house, towards the beds where my children sleep.
0: Thank you. Koya, is there anything that you'd like to add or comment upon in order for this session to feel complete?
1: Um, No, I enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed myself. It's always good to clarify my thoughts around what I actually do with my life, (laughs) which is poetry. So it's it's good to do that.
0: To learn more about Koya Fagan-Mabel's work and to get a copy of her book, just go to the link in the show notes. Check out the guided awareness practice sessions that are part of this season. If you like the show, please rate us and share the work and the heart of these amazing visionary leaders. Check out my books, programs, and courses. Your support helps the show. Check the show notes for links. My final interview in this series is with Dharma teacher Will Johnson, whose work with body awareness as a path to freedom is changing the practice of meditation. Until then, thanks for listening.